Welcome to Mentioned in Dispatches, the podcast from the Western Front Association. I'm Dr Tom Thorpe. The WFA is the UK's largest Great War History Society. We are dedicated to furthering understanding of the First World War and have over 60 branches worldwide. For more information, visit our website at westernfrontassociation.com. Today is the 6th of May 2017. This programme talks to Lucy Gosling on her research into cartoons during the Great War. Lucy was talking to the WFA's AGM in Newcastle over the weekend on Winning with Laughter, Cartoonists at War. She works at the Mary Evans Picture Library and she spoke to me about the talk she gave to the WFA on Saturday. I started by asking her how she developed her interest in cartoons. Well, I've always had a great interest in illustration, art in general. I grew up with beautifully illustrated children's books and things. I've always worked in picture libraries, but in 2003, I got a job managing the archive of the Illustrated London News. Now, that actually consists of nine different magazines, not just the eponymous ILN. And it includes titles like The Sketch, The Tattler and The Bystander, which are a really rich resource for cartoons, not just from the Great War, but also from the 19th century through up to around the Second World War. I think the Great War, because that was a time when all of those magazines were in publication. At that time, they were rivals. They later in the 1920s joined together to become part of the same group. But during the Great War, they were all in publication and they were rivaling each other to show the very best cartoonists and humorous art. Um, so it seemed like you know a really interesting and vibrant period for cartooning. And in 2008, I published a book, which was published by Osprey, uh, uh, called Brushes and Bayonets, which basically tells the story of the Great War through cartoons and illustrations in the Illustrated London News Archive. When you talk about cartoons, what exactly do you mean? I mean, I grew, I grew up with a Beano. Which, I mean, were cartoons like that, or were they more like um, sort of jokes that you would say see in Private Eye or Punch? Much more of the Private Eye and Punch variety. Most cartoons from this period are usually a full page. Uh, one picture and you've got a caption underneath. I think one thing that you really see as a development during the First World War is the captions uh, decrease. A, a big thing in the 19th century with punch cartoons is they often needed quite long and unwieldy explanations to explain you know, whatever the, the political story behind the joke. In the Great War, there was really sort of a movement towards images which were humorous art which was a lot more visual had a lot more impact and really sort of got that message across there might be a caption but it was it was short and it was sweet but that's the majority of them there were certain artists H.M. Bateman is a prime example and he was really a pioneer in this who started to use sequential sort of jokes so you will see Bateman using say a picture of um a gas bag car, you know, because there were um, limitations on fuel during the First World War. Car, uh, lots of vehicles used these you know, un- unwieldy gas bags on the top of their roofs. And, and he, you know, made a fantastic joke out of that, showing it um, you know, eventually flying away off into the distance. But his sequential cartoons meant that very few words were required. And, you know, so, so you're sort of seeing a little bit of a development towards that kind of thing. Whereabouts were um, cartoons published? Were they published in, in newspapers such as the Daily Graphic or did they appear um, in informal battalion newspapers or trench journalist sort of adventures? They appeared everywhere, but the quality of the cartoons that you would get would vary according to the publication. If you're looking at trench newspapers, you're probably getting whoever you know is in your battalion who might be able to draw a little bit to contribute some drawings. The, the same applies to you know regimental um, and you know divisional publications, which which were often 
actually published by you know genuine bona fide publishers like Cassells, but they would normally get people within the division who had an artistic bent to contribute drawings. Then you will have the daily newspapers. You, for instance, had W.K. Hazelden, who lampooned the Kaiser and the Crown Prince with Big and Little Willie in uh, the Daily Mirror. That was one of the most famous kind of cartoon creations of the First World War. So you would get that kind of thing. And then you would also get, I mean, really, it's the creme de la creme I'm talking about when you're talking about magazines like Tatler and Bystander. Those are the magazines that uh, nurtured, and in some cases, it's certainly in the case of Bruce Bairn's father, discovered the great cartoonists of the First World War. So I'm talking Bairn's father, William Heath Robinson, Alfred Leet. Alfred Leet actually um, drew Schmidt the Spy, which was a great way to dispel the hysteria over German spies in Britain in the sort of early months of, of the First World War. Uh, that was in London Opinion, which was another weekly magazine, although it wasn't as expensive and it wasn't quite such good quality. The great thing about magazines like Tatler, Bystanders, they were, they were quite expensive. They were very good quality. So the reproduction on the page has sort of you know, been retained and um, you know, they, they are the best. But, you, you know, cartoons were just part of life. They were re- the best ones were reproduced on postcards. Some of them were used on posters eventually. You know, there's some very serious recruitment posters and there were others that had a, you know, a more joyful aspect. So I think, you know, it's really important to realise how important drawing and cartoons were, how well they were understood by the population. I think it's really difficult for us in a, in a very visual or, movie, or in, a, in a culture which is all about moving images to actually understand that, you know, then it was very much a literal community where you everybody read newspapers there was 400 newspapers in London alone and that these visual images really were powerful were they actually endorsed by um, I was just wondering whether such images were actually often censored everything had to pass through the censor actually I did a chapter in my book Bruce and Bain it's called the blue pencil which is all about censorship and what's really interesting is you will often come across um, cartoons which were actually poking fun at the censor in the gentlest way possible otherwise they wouldn't have been allowed through but every single cartoon that went into any magazine or newspaper had to be pe- passed by the censor and there were often kind of conflicts within that uh, there's a really interesting example which I talked about at, at the AGM talk there was a cartoon published in the bystander in 1916 called um, reported missing and it showed a drunk private soldier British soldier it didn't exactly say where it was but it looked like he was probably in what you know in Africa or, or maybe Gallipoli but he was drunk and it was drawn by a captain and eventually the bystander was prosecuted the editor of the bystander Vivian Carter was prosecuted as were the owners of the bystander it was considered of you know the authorities were worried about was these magazines had a great distribution they found their way into other countries and they didn't like the fact that this cartoon seemed to say that it was okay for british troops to be drunk and we all laughed about it and that wasn't the impression that people wanted to give so you know sometimes uh, magazines might find themselves in hot water vivian carter was actually dismissed a few months later due to another legal trial not about a cartoon but i think that particular cartoon certainly paved the way for his um, his departure unfortunately. And how were sort of national crises covered in cartoons? I'm sort of thinking about things like the shell shortage crisis of May 1915. Well that would be, um, I can't think of an exact 
example of the shell crisis uh, and, a, and a cartoon that fits with that. Uh, and since we're talking, I wouldn't be able to show it to you anyway. <laughs> <laughs> um, what, what cartoonists really did and what they're very good at was kind of, you know, belittling problems and making the public laugh about them. And, and I suppose by doing that, they were you know, just minimising fear and, and, and worry and hysteria. So some of the very early um, sort of 1914, early 1915 depictions of the Germans, for example, are showing the Germans as these monstrous brutes striding over Europe, doing terrible things. I mean, the, the cartoons of Louis Raymaker, who's a Dutch cartoonist, were, you know, they're actually still quite difficult to look at today. I think what you really find is as time goes on, is that the best way to kind of beat the Germans is to laugh at them. And by doing that is, is not to draw them as, you know, uh, fearsome brutes, but actually as sort of silly pot-bellied porcine uh, soldiers with pickle halber helmets. Uh, and that's exactly what Heath Robinson did, and, and he did it brilliantly. So I think that, you know, the, the shell shortage, I think they would have been, ha magazines would have had to be very careful about how they treated a subject like that. But what would happen is when Lloyd George obviously took over munitions and once munitions production started to go up there were cartoons about the positive side of that and how well Britain was doing at producing shells there are an awful lot of cartoons about munitionettes because that was sort of you know a really fun um, celebratory side of, of, of that it's interesting did they did the cartoons I suppose I'm thinking about the home front did they sort of reflect the changing ways of um, for instance a much greater female participation in the workforce the whole sort of creation of new jobs and also did they sort of pander to stereotypes we have this idea of sort of striking workers um, going striking for higher pay while soldiers are suffering in the trenches and did they portray these types of themes? Sometimes, yeah. By and large, the arrival of women in the workplace was um, depicted in a really positive way. I mean, you know, there the were... <laughs> There were stereotypes about pretty girls putting on makeup when you know they should be taking people's tickets on a tram or something. But it's fairly harmless, and uh, and you know by and large it's celebratory, which I think is really great. In terms of producing anything really negative, that probably wouldn't be allowed by the censor. To be honest, you know, th things like strikes. The message was always very much, you know, we're all in it together. Were there actually, I was wondering about the idea of sort of regional variations in cartoons and whether sort of national differences in, say, um, Scotland, Wales and Ireland and whether cartoons were actually produced in Welsh or Gaelic? I don't know about that. Uh, you know, how Highland soldiers were a, a real favourite subject of cartoonists, though, because obviously there the, the were the... Um, the comic possibilities of the kilt. Uh, what's, what's, what's also really interesting is that um, the Germans frequently, when they caricatured the British, and they were never as gentle, they were much more sort of savage view of, of the British, uh, but they, they regularly portrayed the British as Highland soldiers, which is really interesting. I think they were just, they provided such an interesting visual treat is, is, is that's how they often um, were portrayed. Ireland was... was you know, there were lots of cartoons about, look at these good Irishmen who are, you know, doing their bit and they've stopped um, making trouble in their own country and then they've now answered the call. So, there was, you know, again, there was a lot of positivity, like, oh, you know, this, this fuss in Ireland is over now. They're actually, um, you know, doing doing their very best to, to help out. So I think, um, you know, I can only really tell you a, a British viewpoint of, uh, an English viewpoint of the Scottish 
an, an Irish um, contingent. But it, it's interesting. As, you know, they were always looking for different angles. These are, you know, you've got to remember that there was just so, you've already mentioned yourself, there were 400 newspapers. There were so many weekly illustrated papers. So they were always having to look at different ideas and different people and ways to portray them. And finally, how did... Um... The, the papers actually deal with, for instance, the Easter Rising, because he talks about the Irish being now portrayed as, as good and, and not at each other's throats on the verge of uh, civil war, as many British people saw it in 1914. It wasn't given the time of day by cartoonists. The only thing that cartoonists would do is, is portray the good, the good Irish men who, were for, who fought for you know, the mother country. So um, that, that wasn't, I mean, that certainly the Easter Rising was covered in great detail in these magazines, but it wasn't um, really a subject not in the not in my experience of the magazines that I've looked at um, something that was in any way really you know given given any sort of credence at all and finally um, Lucy where can people get your book bayonets and brushes sorry brushes and bayonets, brushes, bayonets. well brushes and bayonets is very sadly out of print but it is you know you can find it on AB books so I've also written a few others I've written a book on Bruce Benn's father called um, a better old and I've written one on Heath Robinson during the first world war um, which is called It's All a Bit Heath Robinson. They should, they're still they're still available. Uh, they're published by the History Press. Um, my book, Great War Britain, which looks at the home front during the First World War through the eyes of these magazines that we have in the archive at Mary Evans, that's still in print as well, and that, that does concentrate quite a lot on entertainment and, on, and cartooning as part of that. Lucy, thank you very much for your time. Pleasure. You have been listening to the Mentioned in Dispatches podcast from the Western Front Association with me, Tom Thorpe. Thank you for all my guests for appearing on this edition. The theme music for this podcast was George Buthworth's The Banks of Green Willow. It was performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales, conducted by Chris Rusman and produced by Biz Records. This recording is part of a collection of orchestral works by Butterworth performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales and supported by the Western Front Association. This is available from all good record stores under the record code BIS2195. Until next time.